You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 179, and I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College. I'm joined online today by Dr. Todd Pedler. He's an associate professor of physics at Luther College. Todd, how are things in Iowa? Uh, Considerably warmer than they were a couple days ago. Um, All right, tell us what warm means in (laughs) Iowa. (laughs) Well, what is it today? I, I don't know. It's about 20 degrees, I, I think. The high up here is 27. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you, you and I usually have similar weather. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, well, you know, two days ago it was 13 below at this time. So, all right, all right. We're, 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 we're good. But I'm, I'm in the midst of J-term, which for me means I've got lots of time. <laughs> all right. What do you teach during J-term? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I actually have a couple. I, I've got one student who's doing research with me in J-Term, and I've got another student who's doing directed readings. So I've got some things to do, but it's it's not like I'm in the, uh, you know, three, three and a half hours a day of class, crazy, ridiculous schedule that some of my colleagues are are, are in the midst of right now. That's where that's why, where Grubbs is, too. That's why he's not yeah. here. Yeah. Well, the other person not teaching J-Term right now is uh, Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Uh, Michael, uh, your regular semester has begun, no? That is true, yes. Very good, very good. Well, today's subject matter uh, is a novel that actually Michael just informed me not long ago was published 50 years ago this year, so this is an anniversary episode, even though I didn't know it when I was cooking up the show notes. The novel is Silence by Shusaku Endo. It is a novel about the Christian faith. It's a novel about persecution. It's a novel about human responsibility. Uh, in other words, it's a uh, perfect episode to have Todd Pedler back on. You'll remember that he was on for our uh, Seventh Seal episode. So it looks like we're going to get existentialist anachronistically once more. So let's start off saying that we are, we are going to talk about the plot of this novel We are going to talk about the end of this novel. Listeners who want to read the book before hearing our conversation are free to pause at this point. The book shouldn't take you too long. It's less than 300 pages. True enough, true enough. And it's not not dense prose in the standard translation. No, no, it's very like Camusian. Very good. uh, It is not a hard read uh, in terms of difficulty. It's a hard read in terms of what it's going to do to you. Oh, oh yeah. it's going to take it's going to take it two or three times through to tease. Yeah. And we will get there. We'll get there. But Todd, <laughs> we're looking like we said before at a 20th century novel, but the setting is 17th century Japan. So, what about these settings, that of the narrative and that of the publication? 
should we know about as we get the conversation going? Well, um, so I, I, I'm going to give, a, I, I guess, a little bit of a background to Endo um, and, and then talk a little bit about uh, the history behind, uh, sort of behind the narrative uh, that, that underlies, uh, some of the important events. So Endo is, is, uh, born in 20, 1923, uh, grew up in, in Japanese occupied Manchuria, uh, moved to Japan, was baptized and convert, you know, and, and he and his mother were converted to Roman Catholicism in 1934. So he was 11 years old. Uh, later in life, <laughs> He described his Catholicism as a set of ill-fitting clothes, uh, which will tie into some of the things perhaps that we'll talk about later in the program. Um, his, his, his faith is really impossible to separate from his literary work. Um, throughout, he's exploring issues of, of faith and, uh, and, and you know, the fact that his clothes just seemed ill-fitting at times, um, which makes his exploration in the literary work very interesting and sometimes controversial for other Catholics and, 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 and Christians. Um, he studied at a university, uh, Keio University, uh, which is a private university which focused on Western learning and graduated with a degree in French literature in 48. Uh, and later ended up spending some time in, in France at Lyon where uh, he focused on French Catholic writers. And there's no doubt that there's got to there's got to be connections between him living as a stranger, as it were, in Europe, in 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 France, uh, as a stranger himself at home, as a Catholic Japanese. Um, you see some of of these themes come uh, come into his his other work uh, as well as Silence. And si- you know, Silence is certainly it's his most famous. Um, but it came on the heels of several other novels and, and short stories um, uh, in which he, he oftentimes deals with apostasy of Christians under persecution, as silence does, uh, or the experience of being a foreigner, um, uh, often French in some of his work. Um, nearly everything in his body of work, though, considers uh, relatively deep moral questions and the existential realities of the struggle of the faithful. Um, he dies in 1996 after complications arising from hepatitis that he had contracted. Uh, there was a little speculation that he might win the Nobel Prize in literature. Um, he was nominated for it two years before he died. Uh, the winner that year happened to be another Japanese novelist. Um, then he dies in 1996 and that closes the door. Uh, on on his, the possibility of him winning a Nobel, um, despite the lack of that recognition, though Endo is is really one of the most revered Japanese authors of the post war period, um, even even to today. Um, I think uh, a few of the things that that help inform us as we read his work. Um, First, his being Christian in Japan, uh, which is which is an oddity in the very least. Um, certainly, upon the outbreak of World War II, uh, something which would have put him at odds with some in his in his home country, because he's now an adherent of the religion of the enemy. Um, secondly, his travel to France, um, uh, he where he suffered a bit of ill treatment as a Japanese man in Western Europe. Of course, he's. Immediate post-war, uh, 1949, uh, his first trip there. Um, all of his bouts with illness um, in in Europe, he had tuberculosis, uh, suffered bouts with pleurisy, and so forth. Um, 
And he himself had something of a crisis of faith uh, uh, while in Europe and decided to travel in to Israel in the 60s and write on the life of Jesus, which prompted one of his other books, uh, I think in 1973, in which he argued that Jesus himself suffered very human struggles with identity and the treatment that he received. And um, he argues in the life of Jesus – here I'm quoting from a source that I didn't <laughs> source myself properly uh, – that the beauty of, and power of Christianity lay not in the cathedral and the works of art therein, um, but in the struggle of the human life within the individual. And I think you in, – in that statement, you hear a lot of what goes on in silence. Um, to introduce the setting of silence in general, the work is set in 17th century Japan. Um, it's a moment uh, which, which seems to me historically quite well described in the novel. Um, it concerns the activities of a father, Sebastian Rodriguez, who is a Portuguese Jesuit priest who has been sent to mission in Japan. Another figure that looms large in the novel is Cristóvão Ferreira, who's also a Jesuit ministry from Portugal, who happens to be an honest-to-goodness figure in the history of, uh, of Catholic missions in Japan, who did apostatize during persecution um, under the Tokugawa shogunate of, of the 1630s. Um, in, in 1632, I think, is the date that's given. Um, and in the novel, Rodriguez arrives in Japan in 1638. Um, a few notes, I, I think, on the back and forth concerning uh, the Roman Catholic mission work in Japan is probably in order too. Um, uh, the mission work had been founded by St. Francis uh, Xavier – I'm pronouncing it in French, but he's Basque um, – uh, who in 1549 uh, went to Japan. Uh, and within 30 years, the number of Christians in Japan actually was 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 quite large, um, numbered in the hundreds of thousands, um, 200,000 by one estimate, 300,000 is mentioned in, in the novel. Um, and because of some concerns arising out of uh, worries that these Christian converts might be uh, – might be a little less than trustworthy, um, part of this comes about because – the Christians upon conversion, upon baptism, were expected to adopt Christian names and incorporate Western culture into their lives. Um, with a change of government and, 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 and suspicion about the Westernizing of these people, uh, persecution sort of began, uh, particularly under the Tokugawa shogunate, uh, which, which came to power in 1603. Um, 1614, the, uh, all missionaries were expelled. Um, and after this, as the ruling authorities continued to oppress Christian communities, um, public torture began uh, to get people to renounce their faith. And again, this is uh, well reflected in silence. Um, just to bring us up to 1638, when Rodriguez in the, in the novel arrives in Japan, things got very messy. Um, there was an uprising in Shimabara, which is mentioned in silence, um, 1637, uh, end of 37 to 38, in which uh, Hara Castle, which is located uh, just adjacent to Nagasaki, was occupied by uh, the Catholic Christians who were protesting the persecution 
that they were undergoing, protesting high taxes, a huge increase in taxes that they had. And the shogunate sent 125,000 troops to the castle to storm it and, and defeat them. And they did. This, ha- this happened. There was about 27,000 rebels, 10,000 sympathizers or so who all were beheaded uh, in April of 1638. Uh, and from that point on, and again, this is right historically when Rodriguez comes in, um, they, Christians went immediately underground, um, adopted the name Kakuri Karishtan, which, which, which means literally hidden Christians. Um, they were subject to search and seizure of property, to further torture again, um, uh, to get them to renounce their, their faith. Um, but they they made every effort to stay underground, and they preserved the faith in a very interesting way, without a, without a formal structure. And Endo is drawing on oral histories um, from the time period of these these hidden Christians to construct some of his narrative. Um, anyway, it's in the midst of these these underground Christians that Rodriguez. Uh, upon arrival in Japan in 1638 is thrust and it's to them that his primary ministry is um, and I think since we'll hit some of the the, the, the plot as we go along um, I'll leave it at that alright alright uh, one thing that I would add just quickly is that the suspicion of Jesuit missionaries I mean has at least something to do and again I, I don't want to go into this saying that there's only one variable involved in this. It's a complex mm. moment in history, but it has something to do with the fact that Christian ministries, both Jesuit and Protestant in the 17th century, tended to hitch rides on Dutch and Spanish and Portuguese warships. Uh, and so mer- in, in, and merchant ships, for that matter. Yeah. So, I mean, in a very real, very visually striking sense, uh, you would have missionaries coming into your country with cannons behind them. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, mm. and you know, uh, I'm not saying that that excuses uh, the persecution of minority religions. I mm-hmm. certainly wouldn't ever say that. But I will say that in order to understand the complexity, that's at least one of the variables that we should take into account. And one other one I would like to add, or actually two more. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, all these countries hated each other and tried to undermine one another, even even their missionary efforts. Mm-hmm. And number yeah. two, both Protestant and Catholic missionaries were sent to Japan, and they tended to try to convert already converted Japanese people uh, <laughs> yeah, in, into, feeling, into yeah. their various sects. Mm-hmm. So, so I th- those two things didn't so help. Lots either. of sex, lots of violence. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing that's that's kind of interesting uh, too, and and I neglected to, to to mention that you know much of the the Portuguese mission work, of course, is guided by the fact that the Portuguese empire is rather huge at this point in time and stretches well into East Asia. A um, crazy thing to think about. Oh, really? Really is. Um, but you know, all the places mentioned, Goa and Macau and and Malacca, those are all Portuguese holdings. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, what's interesting, this Shimabara rebellion and you know where it comes down in, in 38 in this castle being destroyed, uh, who, who supplied the guns, do you suppose? It was the Dutch. <laughs> so so, so the, the shogunate you know, went in with their swords and, and what have you, um, but they were relying on, on gunpowder from Dutch ships in the harbor. Hmm. So, Fascinating. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's this utter tragedy in in the history of missions, isn't it? Because I mean, the, the quote is reproduced in silence. But Francis, how do you, Xavier? Well, I Xavier was, is what I say. But I, I always said Xavier, Xavier but that, sure. I know that's probably the hillbilly. Right. Way to Xavier it. is probably the Basque. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, right. um, that guy uh, said in the in the 17th century that there was no country in Asia more ready or more apt for Christianity than Japan. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and now uh, Christians are two percent of the Japanese population. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well, Michael, uh, we've already mentioned before, but silence begins not with the central character, Rodriguez, but with a report about Ferreira, a character we don't meet directly until much later in the story. Uh, Who is Ferreira in the novel? Todd's already talked a little bit about his historical person. And how does his situation drive the plot of silence? The most important thing that Ferreira does for the novel is that he is Rodriguez and Garp, and uh, the the third one who doesn't actually make it to Japan, I can't remember his name. Mm-hmm. He is their teacher in seminary. I'm not sure that's historically accurate. Uh, Ferreira seems to have gone to Japan when he was like 29 years old, so I'm not sure the degree to which he would have had a chance to be anybody's teacher in seminary, much less, I mean, Rodriguez is in his 30s, uh, so I, I just don't think that's possible. But So this is something Endo added. And the important thing here is that this man, whom they all looked up to, and this is a novel, among other things, that's about the way the faith gets passed on through generations and through traditions. That mm-hmm. this man could apostatize meant that anyone mm-hmm. could apostatize, um, in their eyes anyway. And uh, and so they go to Japan partly to be missionaries and partly to see with their own eyes, in this very empirical sense, mm-hmm. whether the rumors about Ferreira's apostatization are accurate rumors or whether they're, they're something that the Japanese made up in order to discredit Christianity. So really what you get is Ferreira's apostatization is the first nail in the coffin, the first, the first undermining of Rodriguez's own faith, uh, and thus a, a threat that runs from the beginning of the novel until near the end when we finally do meet Ferreira. Mm-hmm. And beyond, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and and since you left it there, Michael, we'll we'll save the encounter between Rodriguez and Ferreira later on for later on in our conversation. But as as far as the early novel, Todd, I mean, would you add anything about Ferreira? Um, well, I guess only only that really they're acting only on rumors um, because what they have is letters from Ferreira that stop suddenly. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's looked up to as this uh, unassailable figure, um, you know, has a has a, um, a an element of divinity to him almost in the way that they talk about him. And there is this stark disbelief that he could ever um, have 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 fallen. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, what the thing that I think is is fascinating, you know, for me is that this is, you know, this is historical reality. I mean, Endo's being, you know, he he's he's taking on this subject with this historic figure. Um, now, I you know, I I know nothing about this history other than what I have in 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 this novel and a little bit of reading I've I've done up on it, you know, to to you know, in preparation for today, but. 
um, you know, th- this has got to be somebody who's known, and and his fall is has got to have some degree of uh, of renown to it. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but I mean, you know, the the interaction is fascinating at the end for sure. To to, mm-hmm. to and yeah, yeah, but I've, but Todd's point stands that you know this is not Winston Smith. This is not a uh, fabricated <laughs> character, but this Oof. has roots in historical documentation and to begin with one rumor and end with another the real mm-hmm. ferrera is said to have reconverted right at the end of his life and have been martyred but i mean right. nobody knows mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> yep. right right mm-hmm. uh well todd before his capture what sorts of events and what sorts of encounters make up the story of rodriguez or to put it another way what about the middle of this novel sets the reader up to suffer so much at the end, hmm. <clears throat> I guess there's a number of ways you could take the, that that restated question. I mean, if you think the end is a tragic apostasy, uh, apostasy showing uh, a lack of true faith, um, then you might con- concentrate on the hypocritical behaviors of Rodriguez when it comes to judgments concerning others. Or if you think the end is an, a you know a true act of apostasy that nevertheless is a uh, an outward act that doesn't demand one think of Rodriguez of having lost his faith, then you might look at things like his understanding of the difference between faith and outward practice that uh, that Rodriguez wrestles with at times. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna highlight a few things which might apply to both of these points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know, the first of these things I think is that's interesting is is Rodriguez's attitude toward the peasants, right? I mean, uh, those were b- both those who weren't yet Christian converts, or, or those who who are. Um, for those of you following along at home, if you want to look at references, I, if we go to page thirty-two, and I, I I don't know, there are multiple editions of this. I mean, I've got this Taplinger one, which has the picture of the crucifix on the front. Um, it's probably the most common. Um, He's speaking of the villagers uh, in Tomogi, which is the, the first people he has significant contact with. And he writes this in, in one of his letters, which is the form that this novel takes at the beginning, is, 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 is letters to his superiors back home. The reason our religion has penetrated this territory like water flowing into dry earth is that it has given to this group of people a human warmth they never, le- never previously knew. For the first time, they met men who treated them like human beings. It was human kindness and charity of the fathers that touched their hearts. Uh, to which I say, oof, the um, neverly, never previously knew human warmth. Um, that's pretty rich. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems to me at the very least this makes an error of judgment um, without knowledge. Uh, and, and that kind of remark is made repeatedly. Um, there's sort of a patriarchalism or, uh, uh, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he, he, he's taking care of these poor benighted souls, um, mm. who aren't worth anything and don't really have humanity, um, within them. It's worth um, noting he can't tell them apart. Like he, he doesn't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. I keep confusing, you know, Izuki from whatever. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's true. Um, but another, you know, another event that's very early is this baptism. Um, and I, the, the passage is pretty moving and I, I'm going to, I'm sorry, I'm going to read 
a bit more here. Um, so Gar, Agarpe, I guess is how I pronounced it. Um, he is, uh, he and his, 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 and, 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 and Rodriguez are, are, are baptizing an infant here. Um, it's the first one, first time they've, they've done this. Um, and he, he writes this, it was our first baptism since coming to Japan. And of course we had no candles nor music in our little hut. The only instrument for the ceremony was a broken little peasant's cup, which we used for holy water, but it was more touching than the liturgy of any cathedral to see that poor little hut with the baby crying and Umatsu soothing it while one of the men stood on guard outside. I thrilled with joy as I listened to the solemn voice of Garpe as he recited the baptismal prayers. This is a happiness that only a missionary priest in a foreign land can relish. As the water flowed over its forehead, the baby wrinkled its face and yelled aloud. Its head was tiny, its eyes were narrow. This was already a peasant face that would in time come to resemble that of Mokichi and Ichizu. This child would also grow up like its parents and grandparents to eke out a miserable existence face to face with the Black Sea in this cramped and desolate land. It too would live like a beast, and like a beast it would die. But Christ did not die for the good and the beautiful. It is easy enough to die for the good and the beautiful. The hard thing is to die for the miserable and corrupt. This is the realization that came home to me acutely at this time. Now there are a number of things in that paragraph that, that hit me. First of all, um, there are things that Rodriguez in this novel comes to realize and express concerning the liturgical practices he's used to expecting and the substance of faith and the practice of faith. Um, it's interesting that in another place where questions come uh, about, about practice come about is, is later on in the novel where he's noting with some disdain that the peasants are seemingly fixated on images and the rosary and treat them as if they themselves are divine and come to sort of worship them. I mean, he, he which is interesting for him as a Roman Catholic to, 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 to comment on at, at least of his worries. Um, but, and he sees in this, 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 rather irregular ceremony without all the pomp and circumstance that might be attendant in the West. Um, he sees there a, a genuineness to what's going on and, and there's a genuineness to his care for those around him, which is coupled at the same time. If you look, if you listen to the latter half of the paragraph with this patronizing attitude, that's the word I was looking for earlier, um, <laughs> that, uh, their existence is miserable. And they live like beasts. Now, maybe they do in a sense, but they're not, they're not wealthy for sure. Um, but do they have the love of others? I mean, you get the sense that he sees Omatsu caring for this very, you know, in this very human way for the baby. Um, and the man caring for all of them by standing guard. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, that, that just struck me. But what struck me most is the, is the fact that he attaches this description, miserable and corrupt, to the presence, the peasants for whom Christ died. And you get the nagging feeling that Rodriguez doesn't see himself in that position mm -hmm. um, as one who is miserable and corrupt. At least he doesn't see it yet. Um, um, and as we, you know, we move on th through, through the novel, we come uh, across a number of places where he seems to stand on his own ability to withstand the trials that are coming. Um, Later, at, at one point after Kichijiro, who's a very important figure, who I will talk about more, um, commits an act of apostasy and flees. And he says at that point, well, if I were an ordinary Christian and not a priest, 
I think maybe I would have fled in the same way. Um, so you know, time and again, we we uh, we see him making both patronizing comments about those around him. We see, especially in his interactions with Kichijiro, who I think is a perfect foil, perfect mirror for Rodriguez. Um, in some ways of the things that are going on in his own heart, um, the struggles that he has, we see them played out directly in Kichijiro and we see hypocritically Rodriguez, you know, coming down on him, um, you know, in ways that he would have to apply to himself later on. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know, Michael, if you, you plan to talk about Kichijiro or, or not, because this guy is, to me, really, really quite fascinating. I, I am more interested in him every time I read the novel. Huh. Yeah. The first time the first time you read it, you just think, oh, this guy is a coward. He's a slime. I mean... <laughs> But, like, he's so aware of his own cowardice, and he has this speech somewhere in the middle where he says, I, you know, I'm not strong. I'm not yeah. Machiko. I'm not, I can't remember their names. Machizo. Those, those two who. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm as bad as, uh, as Rodriguez. <laughs> um, but, but he, he says, I'm not them. I wasn't made to do that. And Rodriguez thinks, oh, well, how many Christians in Europe would, would buckle just like. Mm-hmm. He does, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it's just that they've never been tested. They've never been in this terrible position. And what's interesting about Kichijiro is he keeps coming back. Yep. He apostatizes over and over and over again. And how can you do that if you don't return to the faith over and over and over again? Yeah. He yeah. seems barely. On, on some levels, he's intensely self-aware, and on some levels, he's barely aware of what he's doing. He's he's fascinating to me. Well, that's why I see pairing him with with Rodriguez is is amazingly good. I mean, you know, because Rodriguez is as blind as a bat about himself for for much of the time. Although you you do you do see him come around to understand some things in in time, but Kichijiro is uh, he's sort of the uh, what's the trope? I mean, he's he's just he's he's the plain dealing fool. Yeah, you know? he knows exactly mm-hmm. what he is. Yeah, and yeah. and he's honest about it, like. It, it, it's it's he, he's important for the novel, as you say. Uh, it, it, we we need to note here the similarities of that character to the character of the mestizo in uh, mm-hmm. in Graham Greene's The Power and the Glory, because because one complaint about this novel, and John Updike makes it in his review of it, mm-hmm. is that uh, is that Kichijiro is just kind of a copy of that mestizo. Mm-hmm. Um, if we this is not an episode on Power and the Glory, and I don't want to spoil too much there, but the plots of these two novels are remarkably similar. Yeah. Uh, the Power and the Glory is about a, a whiskey priest, he's called, who kind of wanders uh, Tabasco, Mexico, during a time when it was illegal to be Catholic there, which is another part of world history that most people don't seem to know. It was the 1920s, I think. It wasn't that long ago. Um, and and he has, in, in some sense, lost his faith, but he continues to perform the duties of a priest. And he, too, is betrayed by this, this figure, the Mestizo. I've only read The Power and the Glory once, and it was a while ago. Mm-hmm. Kichijiro, to me, is a much more fully written character mm-hmm. uh, than the Mestizo. Yeah. Um, although I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the cross for that. Cause <laughs> <laughs> I've read Silence... Yeah, more times, yeah, yeah. but I mean, mm-hmm. K- Kichijiro is essential for this novel, and mm-hmm. not just on a plot level. He he's a, he's a sort of character who would not exist if Kichijiro weren't in the novel. Right, 
right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Well, part of the journey of Rodriguez is his confrontation with the reality of persecution. Uh, the realization that none of the souls who suffer in Japan is going to become one of the saints in his books of martyrs that he has this weird comic book fascination with in the beginning of the novel. Michael, talk a little bit about the silence of the victim now, and we'll move over to the silence of God a little bit later. First, about persecution. It's a commonplace in Christian thought that persecution increases the Christian faith. And certainly that seems to be what happened in ancient Rome. Uh, the, the persecution of the Christians caused Christianity to spread in a way that perhaps it wouldn't have if they weren't persecuted. I, I, I grew up hearing this. I don't know if you guys did or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Rodriguez basically says that early in the book. Uh, this is page seven. This whole struggle has had the effect of spreading our doctrine among the multitude and of strengthening uh, the faith of our Christians all has turned out contrary to the intentions of the tyrant. And actually, I'm sorry, I said that was uh, Rodriguez. It's actually Ferreira who writes that. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the keynote here: the idea that that persecution spreads the gospel. Reading this in 1966 or 1969, when the first English translation was published, or 2016, as we are now. We know that didn't happen. We know that 2% of Japan is Christian, uh, that, that it just didn't happen that way. The persecution did not result in the spreading of the faith throughout Japan. And so already, before before we even meet Rodriguez, the uh, the notion that suffering is conducive to the faith has been undermined. The actual suffering we see is not romanticized or romanticizable. Um the the pain they undergo is not picturesque and it's not dramatic it's just painful mm-hmm. um the suffering is ugly it's prohibitive um and it begins even before the persecution uh rodriguez is horrified even before he gets to japan when he goes to uh, todd you pronounced it macau uh yeah macau or unless it's Masao. i don't know uh, whether I, 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 my my inclination was macao i'm really bad with foreign pronunciations <laughs> <laughs> he he's horrified by how ugly the city is and and like he he can't he can't get it through his head that that martyrdom can take place in a world that's not enchanted hmm. for for lack of a better word but, but probably because these saint stories are so often well, frankly, falsified, right? I, I mean, I, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say no, even to our not, Catholic listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, many of the early saint stories, if the people existed, they almost certainly didn't happen the way they did. So, if if Rodriguez is looking at these stories of ancient martyrdoms and saying, "Oh, well, this is what martyrdom is like," he of course he's in for a rude awakening. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The the martyrdom we actually see is really i it kind of beggars belief because what the what the what the japanese are trying to do is is make the consequences of being a christian so horrible that nobody will be a christian that's what the martyrdoms are about and so the ones we see are they tie um they tie the christians to stakes on the beach and just leave them there for days and the tide comes in over them but the tide doesn't drown them and they die of exhaustion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so there's there's no chance to make grand statements because you never know when death is coming and when it does come you're so worn out that you you don't have any energy to say the things you might want to say if you were you know tied to a stake or whatever there's no right. seven last words of uh, I- Ichizo hmm. 
Uh, it, it's just you, you, you just kind of expire. And when he sees Garpe die, it's from a distance, and it's it's his head just sinks under the water. There's there's no there's no chance for emotional release. It just happens. Mm. Um, and, you, and and as you said, we uh, we'll, we'll talk about the silence of God in in a, in a minute or two. But I mean that that's that adds to the the horror here is that there's no divine voice from heaven um, overseeing this suffering. In mm-hmm. fact, there's only one person who can stop this suffering, and it's Rodriguez, because yeah. because they don't torture Rodriguez; they torture the Japanese peasants until he recants. Mm. And so mm-hmm. it's not even like he can boldly and bravely choose martyrdom for himself. They're not offering him martyrdom. It's it's he chooses their martyrdom, and he chooses it in this profoundly unromantic way. Mm-hmm. It's really horrible. Like. It, these sections are are really really difficult to read. Mm. Well, and and I'm as I'm thinking about this this seaside tortures, um, as I recall, uh, what you have is Rodriguez hearing occasionally the singing of Ichizo or or the other one of the two of them slowly die away. Right, I mean, he 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 hears the sounds from the beach, and it's he thinks it's a Chizo singing, and then it, then it stops. Right, right. so you, you don't get dead. the you don't get the Book of Acts here. You don't get singing oh, yeah. in prison because you're suffering for Christ. Right, right, right. Well, I mean, I guess you start out with it, but then it dies. You do, and, and, and he it's rejects painful. it. He's yeah. horrified by the singing. Because the singing's oh, there's a better world waiting for us, and and at one point he mm. he wants to yell at them that heaven's not what you think it is, mm. mm-hmm. which is a really weird reaction. Yeah. Although I mean, completely understandable. He he feels responsible for their suffering, so he wants mm-hmm. them not to suffer. But mm-hmm. instead of he does, you see what I mean? It's a psychologically understandable reaction, although horrifying, nevertheless. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, this novel, I mean, connects to a couple different texts in my mind. I mean, one of them is uh, the World War One poems of Wilfred Owen, uh, because it, it has that same effect of taking all of the romance out of martyrdom the way that Wilfred Owen takes the romance out of warfare. Uh, if you think that martyrdom is something that you read in your, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs or the Martyr's Tales from the Early Church... Um, the way that Endo narrates these people's deaths, I mean, I did, you know, Michael's absolutely right. It just takes all of the wind out of those sails. Um, so in, in some ways, and I think this is where the, the existentialism comes in, it takes away the public character of those deaths and makes Rodriguez and by extension makes the reader confront the fact that these people's deaths, whether it's for the faith or whether it's not, is not something that anyone can share with them. And that's part of the horror of this novel, I think. Hmm. And it's one of the things that Rodriguez laments, right? I mean, he spends all this time talking about how the death of these people is, to, is not like the death of the saints. I yeah. mean, it, it, and, 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 and calls it evil that this is, the re- that this is so. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting to watch him you know, progress as he thinks through these things and, mm-hmm. you know, hmm. well, and I mean, the other text that it reminds me of is, uh, Michael Cavanaugh's book 
or is it Tom Cavanaugh? No, Tom Cavanaugh was Ed. Uh, Michael Cavanaugh's book, um, <laughs> golly, um, Torture and Eucharist, because one of the things that he emphasizes over and over when he talks about the torture regime of Augusto Pinochet is that there is an awareness on the part of those who run that regime that public spectacle tends to incite the public, whereas to let people know that it's happening but not let them turn it into an icon has precisely the opposite psychological effect. And, of course, that book is a 1990s uh, theological uh, monograph. Uh, This is a, you know, novel from much earlier. But I think the same sort of insights going on here that the notion that you can sort of trick the powers of this present darkness into spreading your faith by, you know, martyring you in a fairly simple, straightforward way uh, is to ignore the fact that they know what you're doing. And that, again, is what makes it so terrifying. Let me just correct you there, Nathan. You're talking about William T. Kavanaugh. William T. Kavanaugh. <laughs> I don't know who Michael Kavanaugh is. Well, I... <laughs> It's a grade school friend, you know. Oh, man. I. Yeah, well, that's, uh, at least I didn't leave it Tom Cavanaugh. Cause yeah. I, 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 I know I would have eaten it when listeners wrote in on that one. Anyway. <laughs> oh, shoot. Well, Todd, I want to talk about the scene that has haunted me for the 20 years that I've been reading this novel, and that is the apostasy itself of Rodriguez. Talk a little bit about the imprisonment, the appearance of Ferreira in the last run of the novel, and the terror that leads to the Fumier, and that's how I pronounce it, you pronounce it as you will, <laughs> as the novel closes. Since this is the passage that most folks think of when they think of this novel's title, why is silence such a central word as the novel reaches its end? Well, so... First, Fumier, I guess we should d- define it, uh, although the, 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 the listeners having read uh, Silence Now will know what it is. This is the, the act of placing one's foot upon some representation of Christ or Mary or both as a, as a means of, of making some kind of public act which renounces one's faith. Um, and so that's, that's what's going on. And there are several scenes in which the Fumier is performed. Um, and Fumier is both the image and the act, as I understand it. Um, so, uh, so we'll come to that. Um, his, his imprisonment really is quite interesting um, I, I, and somewhat unexpected in terms of the details. Um, you know, first of all, while he's imprisoned, he's relatively free, at least at first. Um, he's held together with several peasant converts who he knows and is allowed to freely converse with them, pray with them, and so forth. He's not held in some form of isolated confinement, as you might expect, uh, again, not at first, um, and feels as though because of this, he's still able to fulfill his role as a priest. In fact, he says at one point, he's only now finally able to do what he's supposed to have been doing all along um, and do so freely. Um, uh, secondly, during during his imprisonment, he has a couple of encounters with Inoue, Who's the infamous magistrate in Nagasaki who who serves as the first, as, I guess, the chief apostasy officer or something, um, mm-hmm. as it were? Um, 
And the first of these in, in, interactions is where Rodriguez is engaged in some discussion, um, which sort of centers on the nature of truth, which is which is an interesting discussion to to behold, um, with several others, uh, some of them samurai, I think. Um, and it's one in which Inoue is there, um, but but Rodriguez doesn't know it's Inoue. It's an old man who's sitting before him who keeps nodding his head at all of what Rodriguez is saying. And and Rodriguez makes something into claims that he does about the university of the, the universality of the faith um, uh, and of truth. And the only one in the, in, the, in the group that he's talking to that seems to be on his side is this old man who turns out to be Inoue, much to his surprise. Um, but later he encounters him directly and, and – um, the focus of that encounter is on Inoue's claim with, that Christianity and Japan just cannot mix, um, or rather in his word picture, which I, I find very interesting, uh, they can't marry. Uh, mm. So Christianity, as he says it, is both an annoying wife uh, for, for which uh, marriage is intolerable for the husband um, um, or a barren one um, which can produce no children for which marriage should not take place. Um, and Rodriguez leaves, leaves that encounter perplexed. Um, now all along in his imprisonment, he's been expecting to come to physical torture, um, almost banking on it, um, and thinking he's prepared for such a thing and he doesn't get it, at least not yet. He reflects, uh, periodically on the fact that he's, he's enabled, sorry, <clears throat> for the first time, um, to freely serve as a priest, um, but can't understand why he feels as though his resolve is so slowly weakening. Um, he makes that remark rather directly. Now Ferreira is where we, we meet him while while uh, Rodriguez is is imprisoned. Um, seems like he's the he's the ringer, right? That the new way brings in finally to break Rodriguez, um, and you know, uh, there's a period of. It's interesting, given the title, um, of silence, deathly silence, um, Rodriguez says, I think, uh, when Ferreira first sits down with him. Um, and then he breaks the silence by crying out to Ferreira, father, uh, at, which, at which point Ferreira gives him a look which is described just like Cochigiro's look uh, of a servile smile and momentary shame. Um in this first encounter, what Ferreira does is, I think, set him up um, in a way by talking about the way he now living as a Japanese uh, non-Christian, really living as a Japanese person, doing translation work on works of astronomy that only he can can do. Um, he says, "I am able to serve these people." Um, this way again, I think he's softening him up, as it were, um, uh, because he because he knows by his own experience that Rodriguez is struggling with the aspect of of, of, of serving the individual, serving the people around. Um, but among the things that Ferreira talks about in this, this encounter is that the converts, he claims, the converts had apparently only transformed their own worship of their sun god. Um, to a worship of the Christian God without changing the identity of the God they're worshiping. So he's sort of claiming that all the stuff that you've done, all this stuff that I did before is worthless because it didn't actually convert anyone. Um, 
after that encounter, the uh, he's urged to trample the fumier, um, and he's told, and as has been said elsewhere um, in the novel, he's told that this is just a formality. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Um, it's just a formality. We just we just want the outward act, um, and Rodriguez will have nothing of it, uh, nothing of it at all. Um, and at this point, he he says, "Okay, well, I guess now that I've refused this, now you know, no more, Mister Nice Guy. Um, I'm expecting now to be tortured, and he is, but he's not tortured physically. So he's brought to the house of Inoue, um, where uh, he's imprisoned very near the pit. Now, I don't think we talked about this, but the pit is this torture mechanism by which Christians." were to be hung upside down, um, cut behind the ears so that they would bleed to death slowly while the blood drips off their face. Um, and, and Rodriguez is imprisoned right near this place, right near it, but he doesn't yet know it. Um, while he's imprisoned uh, there, he notes two things. Uh, there's two things I think that are interesting. He notes that the in the wall, he traces out with his fingers, laudate eum, praise him, which is carved into the wall. And he finds out later that Ferreira carved those things into the wall when he was imprisoned there, presumably before his apostasy. That's one. Second thing is, and this is, I, I think, actually really remarkable in, in, in the novel, is he thinks that he hears the guard outside his cell snoring. Um, mm. repeatedly and and he, he he compares this guard's snoring this comfortable guard um, that he envisions snoring um, to his own fate as one who's going to face physical torture or even death or so he thinks and he finds the thought ludicrous he says why is human life so full of grotesque irony um, but he didn't know quite how ironic uh, life really is just yet because it finds out a few pages later that it's not snoring but it's the moaning of the Christians hanging, bleeding to death in the pit next door. Um, and, you know, here I, I guess is another place where silence, uh, the concept, really strikes home. Um, and, uh, you know, it is... It's one thing that I actually I will point later on, I'll point listeners to, is to look at the use of silence and of sound by Endo in this novel because it's really brilliant. He talks about sound and he talks about silence a lot. Um, but here it's the, you know, it's, it's clearly the silence of God in the face of the horrific things that he sees. Um, and with Ferreira who, you know, later comes in or has come in and revealed um, the nature of the snoring, as it were. This is what Ferreira finally stresses. It's the silence of God. It's the silence of God that he says caused him to apostatize. Um, and, uh, you know, it, this fact, the snoring of the Christians, the fact that they are um, they're suffering, that he has laughed about it, thinking wrongly what it is, um, the fact that Ferrer has come to him and 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 reemphasized the silence of God in the face of persecution, um, the accusations of 
his own self-centered priorities. Um, you know, Inoue has said that if he steps on the Fumier, the Christians will be released. And Ferreira says, you're struggling this because you refuse to betray the church. And so these innocent people suffer. Um, you're preoccupied with your own salvation. Um, and, uh, you know, these threats, um, they rather starkly defined what Rodriguez is up to and set us an interesting question to think about what comes next. Um, at this, this Fumier scene, one of the things that's interesting, you know, the silence of God has been, un, you know, in, in focus for, for a while. Um, what happens is he, he looks down at the image of Christ that is at his feet, silently there, um, you know, he's, he's being urged to step upon it and suddenly all kinds of things, you know, flood into his mind. This face that he sees to trample on is not the beautiful face of Christ he expected, uh, or, or knew or has loved so much, he says. Um, but it's ugly. It's ugly. Um, and it, at, at this point, the silence of God in some sense is broken because it, the image as it says, speaks out to him to do it and says, trample on me. It was to be trampled upon by men that I was born into this world. And he does it. And of course, what happens is he does it, the rooster crows. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, just one final thought here. The trample that's listed there, trample, trample, um, out of Christ's mouth is – it's in the imperative there, but I've read actually that the original Japanese is not imperative, but huh. is a per, uh, it's a permissive you may. Oh, interesting. Which may – having read that, I'm now really intrigued. But 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 anyway. Um, How good is your I've, Japanese? Not good Sorry. enough to – well, it would be good enough if I saw it to be able to tell whether it was imperative or not. Okay. Yeah, because I know um, you, you, you spend time in Japan – and I, yeah. Accelerator. yeah, and I, and I, and I, and I, and I've studied it a bit, but, um, and I, but I haven't got the text before me to look at it, but, um, but I, you know, I take that on, you know, credit of the, of the, of the translator. Um, interesting, interesting, but, um, mm -hmm. but enough for me. <laughs> One thing that I would add that kind of leads up to that is that Ferreira, um, and again, I don't know how much, uh, Endo here is sort of playing with the we with the stereotype of the Jesuit as the person who can argue until the bad becomes the good, or how much it's just part of the psychology of the scene. But mm. you know, he he does, as Todd noted, you know, tell Rodriguez that you're just concerned with your own salvation. He also says the only reason you're not trampling is because you've been looking down on these people your whole life and you don't want to become like them. Mm. And, you know, if Christ were here, and this is sort of the last thing that he oh, yeah. he says that, that finally breaks Rodriguez, and I quote, certainly Christ would have apostatized for them. And and I'll admit, I mean, I, every time I've read this novel, I, I come to it thinking, okay, you know, we're, we're about to get to Ferreira's spurious Jesuit argument here. Hmm. But by that point, uh, the novel has gotten so intense that I believe him. <laughs> uh, mm. so I mean I, I don't know if there's three lights or not <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> so, my, Michael, what do you think? I mean, is is Ferreira here the ironic voice of truth, or you know, is this speaking Fumier simply the delusion of Rodriguez, or or is the point that we can't know? No, the point is you can't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it it in a novel called Silence. When you do finally hear God speak, you have to assume you don't. You have to assume you can't assume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, uh, and he does hear Christ a couple other times in the novel, and Christ is all, always says the conventional thing, which is, mm-hmm. "I am with you in your suffering." Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is it's so unconventional. Mm. Yeah, but then the situation Rodriguez is in is unconventional. So, uh, yeah, it's it's. I th- I think the point is you can't possibly tell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Michael, the oh, go ahead, Todd. Sorry. No, no I, I and I, I guess I'm going to say I'm going to say this later too because one of the things that that keeps coming back to me in this novel, and and I really noticed at this time, is the focus on the face of Christ. That he keeps picturing the face of Christ, mm-hmm. and the face as this beautiful, calm, serene, perfect, unstained by humanity face that then in the turn, the twist here at the end has become this pain-racked, suffering, dirty face that he must trample mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Uh, it just hits me in the pit of the stomach. I mean, it. yeah. What mm-hmm. makes me think of uh, Flannery O'Connor's Parker's Back, mm. wherein uh, this, you know, one of her hillbillies... <laughs> Gets a gets a full back tattoo of Christ's face, and his wife, who hates tattoos, is so angry at him she beats him on the back with a broom until Christ's face has wounds all over it. And of course, she doesn't. She has no idea who it's supposed to be. Oh, oh wow! Indeed. Well, Michael, the the novel's final scene is a confession, which is appropriate. And the quiet glory of the scene is that Rodriguez, who is no longer an official of the church and is no longer even Rodriguez, nonetheless takes a stand on his own sins in a way that he hasn't the whole novel, even as the apostate Paul, and you can explain that phrase, hears Kichijiro's confession. What vision of forgiveness emerges in the novel's final run? He's called the apostate Paul because the uh, the little... Japanese street rats run around calling him that and uh, Ferreira the apostate Peter just mocking him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty cruel if you think about it. <laughs> um, back to Power they, and the they, Glory. These are Dostoevsky children. These are not uh, <laughs> English romantic children. Yeah. Oh, back, to, back to Power and the Glory. The point of the Power and the Glory as I read that novel is the Catholic doctrine ex opere operato. I, I guess mm-hmm. is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, which suggests that the sacrament performs itself on Christ's merit rather than on the merit of the the person performing the sacrament. So in other words, it kind of doesn't matter that a whiskey priest doesn't really have any faith left. He is performing the sacrament, and thus the sacrament is beneficial to those who are receiving it in the correct spirit. I think that's kind of what's going on here. Confession is a sacrament uh, in Catholicism. Kichijiro comes to him and requests it. We we already know from earlier in the novel that the priests have no right to refuse 
a request for a sacrament. I mean, they, they put themselves in real harm's way in order to, to perform those sacraments because people need them. And so I think Rodriguez, who it's not even clear whether he conceives of himself as having lost his faith. He says that the God he worships is not the God of the churches, but I mean, who knows what that means? He, Mm -hmm. he still feels obligated to do it. And if that, if that, uh, and he says he he does it because there's no one else to do it. And if that doctrine of ex opere operato is true, I think you have to, I think you have to accept that Kichajira's confession is real, even if Rodriguez is no longer really a priest. Although I think there's certainly a reading of the last couple chapters of this novel that say, well, in fact, Rodriguez is still a priest and not the sort of priest that Ferreira is. He's still like genuinely a priest, even though he, I don't know, it's hard well, to. It's interesting that when he says, I'm the only one here to do it, it's very different than the tone with which he says the same thing repeatedly earlier, mm-hmm. where he says, I'm the last one. I'm the only priest here after Garpe dies. You know, I'm the only one left to serve these people. There's a, there's a pride with which it's said there that at the very end, it doesn't seem to be there. Now, yeah. that might be my own subjectivizing of, of the text, but I, I really feel like it looks different. Well, and, and what's interesting is I think it's the chapter right before this. One of the last things that happens before he tramples the Fumier is he says there's no difference between me and Kichijiro. Yes. Mm, and and yeah. it, it's like when he does that, he is able to allow the sacrament to perform itself instead of seeing seeing himself as the, the messianic the performer of the sacrament. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And Michael, just real quick, I mean, the the doctrine of, and go, go ahead and say the Latin, because if I don't have it in front of me, I'll say the wrong suffix. And get I, it I, had to, I had to bring it up. It's, it's sitting on my screen as we speak. I, I believe it's pronounced <laughs> ex opore operato. Right. Now, the opposite of that, and I don't have the Latin in front of me, so I'm not going to attempt it, uh, was a view that came up after the Donatist controversy uh, in the in the patristic era. And, you know, there were certain Christian bodies, largely in North Africa, but also in other parts of the Roman Empire, that held that priests who had fallen into apostasy during that persecution uh, were basically unable to perform baptism, to receive confession, to um, administer the Eucharist uh, in, with any efficacy. Uh, and so, I mean, this is a situation that certainly runs parallel to that one, uh, and it, it it really is a, a an exploration of the existential and psychological reality of that uh, in really a beautiful way, I think. But I just wanted to give that little nod to historical background, even as I don't have enough Latin to name the uh, rejected doctrine properly. Right, and the other thing to point out is if if the workings of the sacrament don't depend on the person working them, they are they're grace, and, and I mean mm-hmm. there's there's no other way to think about it, and and so mm-hmm. this novel ends up being a novel about grace. It's it's a, it's mm-hmm. about it doesn't matter how worthy Rodriguez is. What matters is the the divine activity of the confession that Kichijiro engages in in the last pages of the novel. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, the novel seems to me ultimately about Kichijiro's faith rather than about Rodriguez's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what I love about that last scene is that there's a real way in which Kichijiro is receiving 
the confession of Rodriguez, even as Rodriguez receives the confession of Kichijiro. And, you know, neither one of them is, by any means, someone with the moral standing to forgive sins, but Christ forgives both of them. Right. Hmm. And and honestly, that's that's why uh, you know Todd, you were talking earlier about you know how you regard the character Rodriguez. I mean, what I find most terrifying, and and I, and I still do. I mean, I you know I've read this novel a few times. I still find it terrifying that you really don't know uh, there at the end whether you are genuinely getting a sort of Kierkegaardian fear and trembling moment where. You know, Rodriguez really should transcend the ethical and trample because God commands him, or whether he's just out of his mind with guilt and fear. Hmm. And at the end of the novel, you still don't know. Mm-hmm. And maybe and I you mean, shouldn't. I, I it's think... his business, not yours. Then <laughs> <laughs> why do you write it down? <laughs> he didn't. He did. I mean, no. no. Oh well, because he because he wants you to wrestle with it. But. It's left there. Uh, the open. It's the open question, right? It's the yeah, open question yeah. that a good novel ends with, right? Mm-hmm. Oh man. Well, this is you know without a doubt a rich text, a haunting text, uh, a text that stays with you for uh, decades. If my experience hmm. uh, is something that anyone else shares. Uh, our brief conversation here can by no means exhaust it. So here at the end, as we often do when we do uh, what Michael calls single text episodes, I want to take it around the horn. What should our listeners look for the next time they read this novel? Uh, Todd, you go first and then pass it on to Michael. Okay, uh, just very briefly without without going into too, too much depth. I mean, here are some things that, that I take away um, in my, I don't know, nth reading i don't know if n is four or five um there one thing is purely literary i mean the 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 crafting of the descriptions of nature i it's are beautiful at least in translation they're, they're they're beautiful the way he talks about the mist over the landscape um even this even the even the crazy things about the fighting with the lice, which I find interesting, you know, the the battle, doing nightly battle with the lice in his little hut. Um, but little descriptive elements like that. I mean, I think he's he's writing a, a genuinely well-crafted piece of work here um, that can be appreciated um, for, for that alone, the poetry of the language. Um, but but two things which are more germane to, to, to the text itself – um, as I already mentioned, silence and sound, uh, where silence comes in, the deadly silence, the deathly silence that exists in the room before he finally speaks to Ferreira, um, the silence of the Black Sea um, as it takes the dead, um, in addition to the silence of God, of course, you know, which, is, um, which is everywhere. Um, but look – uh, as I would say to, to to readers, look at those periods of silence and look at what silence means. It's normally kind of an ominous thing. It's not, you know, the peaceful silence of the meadow, um, but it's the silence of terror, mm-hmm. um, or the silence of Christ as the Lamb, which opens not its mouth, um, which uh, you know, which I, which I. You know, obviously, is biblical from Isaiah. Um, 
but um, I, I think is interwoven here too, although although I haven't really explored that much, but I will the next time I read. Um, but the other thing is the face thing. Um, he's always looking at the faces of the peasants. You know, we read the passage from the baptism where he says the face of this infant is going to, you know, in, in time will look just like those around him. But the face of Christ, which he himself says, um, is is unknown. We don't know what the face is. He imagines this face, which I think is important. He imagines this serene, peaceful, patient, kind face. Um, and the face is transformed when he's looking at the fumier um, to trample upon it. And he sees a suffering face maybe for the first time. And um, – I, I just I think that's powerful. I think that's powerful. So I mean, the, the fact is, I, I I think that Endo is doing something very intentional here, where he talks about the face of Christ throughout and twists it there at the end. So those would be my few things. Michael, if God's silence is connected to the sea, it's a really weird kind of silence because hmm. the sea's not silent. The sea's constantly making noise. It's just that Rodriguez is too far away from it to hear it. That's the sense in which the sea is silent. It's his perspective on it. I don't know what to make of that, but uh, that's that's the, an observation. Another thing: this is a novel about exile. Um, mm. a, you know, typical existentialist theme. Frankly, uh, Todd talked about Indo being kind of a double exile: a Christian in Japan, a Japanese person in France. Um, Rodriguez and Garpe are, of course, both exiles in Japan. Mm. More interesting, Kichijiro is. He's he's in exile from all the other Christians who avoid him. He's he's an outcast. He's a scapegoat in some ways. Even when he's thrown in the prison cell with him, they make him sit against the opposite wall. Mm-hmm. And he's in exile from his own home, right? Because his first apostasy was one in which his entire family was rounded up, and he abandoned them and left, and never never again went back. Right. Mm-hmm. One other thing, um, the movie version of this is finally coming out this year. It, it has been rumored for two decades, probably. Uh, Scorsese is directing it. I can't think of a better person to direct a, a film adaptation of Silence. It was mm-hmm. supposed to star Daniel Day-Lewis as Rodriguez, but he has aged out. <laughs> uh, that's how long this has been rumored. And now it, I think it's Andrew Garfield as Rodriguez and Adam Driver from Star Wars as uh, Garpe. Mm. With Liam Neeson as Ferreira, so... That's coming out later this year. Maybe yeah, it'll be good. No. Oh, man. Yeah, Liam Neeson would be a terrifying Ferreira. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, but how good would Daniel Day-Lewis have been as Rodriguez? That's a real bummer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just took too long. I mean, <laughs> I, the, 1991, I think, is when Scorsese first announced he was going to make this movie. Hmm. And see, I, I dislike his version of uh, Last Temp- Temptation of Christ so much that that actually makes me a little bit sad. But I will, <laughs> I, I will try. I will try to reserve judgment and uh, watch the film. Well, it's twenty five years later. Mind. So, you know, it is. It is. You don't like the Bunsen burner devil? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> or, or Judas with that weird Bronx accent? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um. What what I encourage our listeners to really think about, and again, and again, I'm going to go to that last scene just because, again, it's it's a scene that has so much going on that you you very well might spend 20 years thinking about it. Um, in the final scene, Rodriguez says, "I resented your silence, irrespective of the fact that he heard the voice of Christ talking to him." 
And that contradiction right there, I think, is really at the heart of what this novel is exploring. You have legitimate church tradition of the saints' lives. You have legitimate church tradition of doctrines of ex opare operator or ex opare operato. I can't remember which one. Uh, again, Latin, it's hard. Um, <laughs> but in all of this, you know, what this novel makes you confront is that you exist as part of an ongoing body of Christ, an eternal body of Christ. And yet it's also true that when the crisis moment comes, uh, you are responsible for the way that you carry that tradition forward. It really is silence even when Christ is talking to you. Uh, and that reality, honestly, is something that uh, you know I, I sometimes bring across to my own students at a Pentecostal college, not with nearly the power of Shusaku Endo, but it is just as offensive to them as it is to me when I really sit down and think about it. But sometimes the faith should be offensive, I reckon. Hmm. Michael, who is uh, at the reins next time? Uh, either me or David. I I think it's David, because I did, I, we did that Barth episode. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So, uh, listeners, uh, you will find out when we find out, or maybe slightly after. Well, I and I, I should point out, <laughs> we don't know that David will be back, because uh, I suppose we can announce this. Katie is due real soon. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. We, we may have another guest next week. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> yes, more more grubs for the grubs. <laughs> for the grubbing. Yes, yes. Well, grubs is always plural. So, Oh, true enough, true enough. So, grubs this is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, listeners, uh, you can look forward to a surprise, not only in terms of subject matter, but also in terms of lineup. Uh, it's it's like watching your favorite NFL team in week 16. You just never know who's actually going to be on the field when the game starts. Uh, in the meantime, though, you can find us at uh, christianhumanist.org on the internet. On Facebook, you can find Christian Humanist Podcast as well as Book of Nature. You should look at both of those. Of course, we always beg you, or at least I always beg you because I'm a beggar, uh, to go on iTunes Write us a review there on iTunes because that is the most common distributive podcast. That's how we get more people in the conversation. Tell people about us. Have fun with this. That's what we're doing this for. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amber Lee Copeland is our sound ed- editor. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Todd Pedler and Michael Farmer saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.